Welcome to the Agility Transformation Podcast. This is your host, Kelly Fiday, PhD. I'm an Agile coach and an executive coach. I love helping people discover the best in themselves and then making that even better. I'm an avid rock climber, whitewater rafter, a mom, and a Rotary Club member. The goal of this podcast is to explore ways to help Agile transformations be successful. Many Agile transformations start strong, then fade out. And I'm guessing none of you woke up this morning and said, today I'm looking forward to being half-assed. There are some people that actually are succeeding at this Agile game, including making it sustainable and getting huge ROI benefits. My goal is to make you one of them. This podcast is to help you avoid common pitfalls and give you ways to make your Agile transformation successful and sustainable. Who it's for is those of you interested to find ways to create lasting success at Agile and transformation. Whether you're a leader, coach, scrum master, product owner, team member, or some other role in a group that's moving towards Agile. We interview super interesting guests in areas ranging from culture, org change, coaching, technical Agile, leveraging improv for transformation, and much more. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Welcome to this podcast. I'm here interviewing Adarsh Medotra. I hope I said your name somewhat correct. He is... Oh, it's 90% accurate. Thank you. you. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'll take that. (laughs) So Adarsh is industry principal at Infosys. Managing the DevOps practices has been doing this type of work for 14 years. He's led many DevOps transformations globally, especially in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, and has also spoken in many public forums on DevOps-related topics like microservices, setting up pipelines in DevOps, large-scale transformations like, you know, how do you do scalability around DevOps adoption? You know, just um, doing this introduction makes me want to, you know, invite you to a public forum in my neighborhood. It sounds like you have so many interesting topics. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. Sure. Sure. Thanks. So um, in the IT world, my career spans for close to 14 years. I started as a .NET developer. And for seven, seven and a half years of my career, I was a .NET architect. Then I later moved on to the application lifecycle management area. So I was working on a lot of ALM tools, which is when I got a chance uh, to lead a service offering, to lead a whole service line, rather, um, the ALM service line within Infosys. And uh, it was pretty new to me. I was uh, new to the consulting world, but I thought it was pretty exciting. And let me venture into it. And that's where I jumped into the ALM uh, field. And we created service offerings, took them to the clients, well, it was received pretty well. In fact, we had our first customer in Telecom New Zealand, which is now known as Spark. And later on, the ALM service line graduated to DevOps, and hence now I am the head of DevOps within the EQS practice. That's how it goes. And so what would be something about yourself that no one else would guess? Um, yeah. I, I, I believe... Uh, the ability to take um, very quick decisions. So um, a lot of times I've already uh, decided, you know, what is right and what is wrong. Uh, I, I do take long pauses and, and uh, I do give myself a lot of time in front of other people. But, but generally there is, a, there is a premonition that this goes well or this, goes, this doesn't go well. So, so I, I, I decide on that um, 
sometimes it it's kind of gut feel it goes well sometimes it doesn't go well the other times but yes there's something that uh, a lot of people don't know they uh, probably is it's is the way that i've been working since last i don't know um, 14 uh-huh. 14 years within the industry that you've got a gut feel about how something's going to go and it often yeah yeah exactly right uh huh yeah so far, so far is it, it's been pretty pretty okay i think uh, not bad um, especially when it comes to the human relations and dealing with people under me um a lot of times you have to take uh, decisions um which are um which may turn out to be right or wrong but i don't take uh, you know i don't spend too much time in thinking about it and then deciding it's uh-huh. just gut feel and, and so most of the time it, it it goes well yeah you know it's such an interesting topic um this this thing about gut feel because i think a lot of people myself included sometimes spend a lot of time in our heads like analyzing the different avenues that something could go what are the different options and at a certain point it becomes like the monkey mind sort of jumping yeah. around in your head and um sometimes in technology i think we don't trust our gut enough and there's actually neurological research out there that's new in the last 5-10 years where they're finding a lot of neurological cells in the heart and in in the gut actually in the intestines oh, okay and there oh, okay. there's so many neurological cells in the heart and the intestine they're calling them the second brain now in neurology research wow. Oh, um, good to hear that. So, yeah, if I was put through that experiment, you know, maybe I'll pass with flying colors. <laughs> yeah. So, tell us about one or two of your hobbies. What do you like to do in your spare time? Uh, sure. So, I'm a very avid uh, volleyball player. Um, I just stand five foot five, but still, I'm a I'm a good defender, and I spend close to what um, four hours on the weekend playing volleyball. which oh, wow. uh, which is which is very 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 refreshing yeah and uh, besides that yeah i do play guitar and i teach guitar to my kids these days it's more difficult because they don't listen to you uh, <laughs> but yeah this is where we stand and these two things keep me pretty busy how old are your kids uh the elder one is 8 the younger one is 2 oh that's those are wonderfully fun ages oh yes keeps you a lot busy so after work i mean if people say what do you do after work i say well actually nothing <laughs> just look to, look after the kids and that's it that's the end of the day yeah it's like nothing and everything parenting such yeah. an important job yeah so you mentioned okay. before we started recording that you're starting to explore or you're already exploring new areas beyond agile and devops um like blockchain devops tell tell me a little bit more about that what does that entail right so almost all the value streams that you look today you talk about uh, the supply chain you talk about any other stream you talk about logistics today uh, you talk about the shipping industry very quickly and fast in a, in a very rapid manner they are all adopting to blockchain and by 2025 this is probably uh, the most important area in fact it's been predicted today that after internet blockchain is probably the best thing that could have happened um, so wow. this is a wave that we need to ride on and we yeah and, and and we need to be like really quick be the first adopters um, and take the the first move advantage so what we've done is in particularly in our case we have one very important use case that i'm working on for one of our 
uh, telcos these days, which is how you shrink the uh, deployment automation part when it comes to deployment to production. So today, let's say typically you can move very fast with a DevOps pipeline all the way till pre-production. But when it comes to moving things into production, that's where it becomes very tricky. Um, yeah. A lot of organizations outsource their testing functions to, to, to somebody else. Um, they will outsource their performance testing to some other organization. You may need a lot of approvals uh, from your business and a lot of stakeholders. And then finally, it's kind of a two to three week of cycle and when you can finally hit production. So what is this underlying mechanism which is holding us back? It's trust. And what blockchain, a private blockchain would give you is trust on the systems themselves. And this is what we have been working on to, to, to shrink uh, the overall deployment time to production by creating a private blockchain and establishing smart contract development uh, between these parties and create that trust. So this is what we've been working on as we speak. Very interesting. You know, with my main client right now, um, I'm coaching many people who are working on blockchain in the manufacturing space. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see how yes. they combine it, not only with automation of deployment pipelines, but also with other manufacturing topics like um, robotics in warehouse and um, AI, um, artificial intelligence, That's right. just seems like the big thing. Um, and yet it's been yeah. a new term for me. You know, I kept hearing it so much, I finally had to ask, what's blockchain? So how would you give a simple description or definition of what's blockchain? Sure. So um, it's an entity of records that you maintain um, within a system rather than, let's say, on it's, it's kind of a, a ledger that you maintain online. And every record that you add, it has to be certified by a, a group of people. So in our case, for example, if I talk about a private blockchain and I need to add another part uh, to it, then it has to be certified by other people so that they are satisfied that the progress that has been shown is all good. So that is how you, know, you define blockchain. So you Very add a block to the chain. Yeah, okay. add a block to the chain. Uh, based on the certification or the approvals that others provide on a system. So, you know, in simple layman language, that's how uh, we call it. One of the biggest uh, uh, use cases of uh, blockchain has been Bitcoin. So I'm sure you would, you, you would have known about Bitcoin, right? So the yeah. underlying platforms that it utilizes are all blockchain technology in, in, in the background. And you can see how important it would be to have something pre-certified when you're dealing with um, a financial product like that. Of um, course, yeah, of course. It, so, oh, go ahead. A lot of our, lot of our banking clients uh, are running a lot of experiments, even involving Infosys, by, by the way, uh, uh, on tools like Hyperledger um, and, and ensuring that um, the, the transactions that happen within the banks, if we can form a private consortium, a private blockchain, and then make it move faster rather than manual involvement so Infosys is also involved in a big way in uh, supporting a lot of, lot of it. That's really interesting. And it, it kind of reminds me of the other topic that you had mentioned when we were talking just now about yeah. uh, DevSecOps, like security. You know, That's when right. you describe blockchain as, you know, there's a, a block that's pre-certified. Would that be maybe one type of DevSecOps or not necessarily? 
Um, so the word DevSecOps is being utilized um, from an angle where you say that you bring in security a lot early to the life cycle towards the left of the SDLC. For example, um, you know, we do a last mile testing always, uh, which takes a very long time. And, and even, if, even if you automated it, if you found an, a defect at that stage, you're spending too much of a cost in, in fixing it because it has to, again, undergo all, all your dev, test, SQI, whatever those environments again, right? Yeah. So the objective for us is to bring some of those, those testing aspects very early into the life cycle. Say, for example, I talk about yeah. a, a SAS scan or a DAST scan, or I talk about uh, vulnerabilities on third-party libraries, uh, or I talk about vulnerabilities that may uh, stem from you, you utilizing containers, so container security vulnerabilities, or vulnerabilities around the open source libraries that you use. So a lot of it uh, you can address fairly early in an automated fashion within your own CI/CD pipelines so that you get the visibility makes a fix a lot early. Um, and, and then what happens is then you save a lot of cost uh, because you fix them a lot yeah. early in the life cycle. So to, to what degree does doing that depend on modularized architecture and how do you do that in an environment where there's a fair amount of legacy debt? Oh, that's a very great, very good question. Uh, in fact, those are some of the challenges we keep facing day in and day out. So first of all, um, modularized structure, what it does is it gives you a lot more control when some of these tools run and the output comes out fairly fast and quick. Whereas if I am looking at a legacy world, uh, I'm looking at millions of lines of code. And yeah. so at, at what stage you introduce tools like this, at what frequency do these tools run, what sure. becomes your baseline? Those are some very important questions we need to address. Um, so what we typically do is, uh, let's say if you have a legacy code base, which is huge, uh, you, you, you run the tooling solution, let's say once you run a security analysis for them once, and you say, okay, here is your baseline. You have thousand vulnerabilities, which is fine. But from tomorrow onwards, if it is thousand one, I fail your build. So you can live with your thousand because that's the tech debt you are carrying, but I won't allow a thousand one uh, because now you know the importance of the vulnerability that comes out. Totally. Um, so this kind of... These kind of controls you can build into their pipelines. And then, of course, over a period of time, you give them a grace period and say, all right, now what about your tech debt and how long do you take to remove it? So you have mechanisms in place on tools where you say, uh, okay, here is my quality threshold or here is my security threshold. Um, vulnerabilities which are marked high in the new code, uh, for the, that they should not be greater than zero, which means that you, know, you immediately fail the build. Now, you also have another flavor to it, whereas vulnerabilities on your overall code base, and you can fix a number. So let's say in, in this case, it's 1,000. So you okay. say that, okay, over a period of time, I need 10%, 15%, whatever reduction um, in, in next four months, five months, whatever agreement that you have with your business, because your business has to see the value uh, that, you know, today something is lying in my production, which may cause havoc. Uh, there are vulnerabilities which are marked really high, and they're sitting in production today. And hence, I need to remove it. So that information radiation to them is very important. And that's how they understand it. And they will say, all right, go ahead and remove the tech debt. Um, so, so yeah, so these are some of the practices we need to bring in uh, in the legacy world, especially. Hmm. A lot of education needs to. Well, yeah, actually, that's, that's one thing I hear you saying is the education piece is that you're yeah. able to translate what's happening technically into business speaks so that they can make business decisions about oh, what yes. they want to invest in 
removing and when. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. That's a very important point. Yeah, go ahead. In fact, I'll give you a very good example. I'll give you a very, very good example of how we practically did it with one of these telcos. So uh, once the vulnerabilities were out for some of the key systems, we had a showcase with the business and we said, look, um, there is a massive technical debt your applications are carrying. And here is the risk you carry because of this tech debt. So vulnerabilities which are marked high at any time if they fail in production, this is the dollar uh, value loss that you incur. Are you okay with it? And they said, absolutely not. And this is the, this is the first time somebody has shown us a view like this. Yeah, so yeah. That, 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 now, now the dashboard sits next to the product owners, uh, sits next to the business. And they realize, okay, it looks like we are in a bad shape. And when right. they prioritize their stories, they say, all right, I do not need any high vulnerability issues. Let's fix them uh, right up front. Uh, in fact, it is very interesting that some of these applications had close to 1,000 vulnerabilities for um, you know, and this is massive. So we said, how, what we will do is we will plan uh, a two-day uh, marathon exercise, which will wow. be a tech debt removal exercise in a month, where the only focus of the team would be to remove the tech debt uh, so that you know, we can get rid of it once and for all. So yeah, those practices were encouraged by business. We got their time. They said, okay, um, um, you know, one-off exercise, two days in a month, uh, we are fine with it and you can please go ahead with it. That's how the planning happened. So this is how you can remove the tech debt and some of these practices have worked well. And so if you look at, say, one piece of tech debt and say that's worth, say, $300, which is, I don't know, an hour and a half or whatever of a developer's time, um, do yeah. you size your pieces of tech debt? Because you might have one piece of tech debt that looks like it's just in the code, it, a yeah. set of code, but it turns out that it also um, has interfaces with, say, two or three other systems. So if that doesn't work, then those links are broken. Now it's a much more complex cost more costly piece of tech debt so do you size your pieces of tech debts or how do you deal with the fact that there's sometimes small monster baby monster tech debts and then huge swamp monster tech debts how do you deal with that yeah again a very good question um and no straightforward answers to it what is what happens is that the analysis happens on on the issues which are marked as high vulnerabilities uh, and those are the ones that you have to deal with uh, no matter what happens. I mean, those are the ones which have to be fixed. And and the analysis is done by the architects in what it takes for us to fix them. So even though, let's say, there are 10 vulnerabilities, but the patterns of those would be hardly three or four. So if you fix one, for example, you fix the other three automatically. Yeah. So these patterns are identified, and then they are conveyed back to the teams. The teams understand them really well. And uh, and, and then then they, they codify and make sure that things are okay. The tests are, and the checks are run again. And now things fall into place for them. So the, the, when, the, when the planning happens, uh, again, like you have these golden user stories um, within your sprint, similarly, these are the things that are uh, already documented. And how much time it takes for us, let's say, to fix uh, um, a thread which is open in a .NET code base. Um, okay. maybe, uh, maybe one hour. And, and then the teams go back and say, okay, we've estimated for it because these are the 10 er errors that we got. We've estimated for this in this planning and this will not repeat. So it's kind of a, an exercise that comes from practice and people look at historically and see some of these vulnerabilities that we got, what, what it took for us to fix them. And those become kind of your golden stories to follow and imbibe for the rest of the teams. That makes sense. And I was smiling because it reminded me, you know, you said um, you fix one piece of deck, tech debt and it 
fixes three others, but sometimes you fix one piece of tech debt and it breaks three others. It breaks three, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, an interesting one. Uh, it has happened at times, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. That, you need to know end to end. You, I mean, the, the objective yeah. is that that is where the architects sit and they understand those pieces really well. They understand them end to end. Uh, and then if there is any fallback, again, you have, you know, rigors and checks or tests that run, which can tell you whether you've not broken anything else. So you fix things at your own end and then only commit or merge to your master or trunk. So you understand the implications of whatever you develop. Yeah, assuming it's sufficiently modularized and it reminds me of a previous client from several years ago that mm -hmm. was not modularized. They had stored procedures embedded in the database. Um, ah, okay. They had millions of them. Um, they had database, a database, but it was not normalized at all. Not even to first normal third form, much less ah, okay. normal okay. form. Um, so the only people that could be efficient were the people that had developed the system over the past twenty years, because it was right. So complicated. So it leads me to a related question to ask you: Is that is is any of your work proactive? For example, tech debt comes from many places, but one place, is, place it comes from is sloppy technical work. So for example, That's do you right. talk to companies about um, good coding practices like uh, refactoring patterns, you know, just basic hygiene? Do you do any of that? Sure. So I mean, if you take a look, let's say at standard uh, practices within Java, so we call it moving from stupid to solid. Solid are you know, the fundamental principles, for example, um, the people misuse a lot of singleton pattern and things like that. Yeah. Um, so so the, the, the objective is that um, we, we have special dedicated training sessions for people depending on the technology streams that they are in so that they understand uh, what good looks like in terms of coding practices. So this is, this is, this is one very proactive approach that gets taken. Also, especially when it comes to security vulnerabilities, um, Identifying those patterns are not easy. Uh, and that is where we sometimes, in, in case of my current client, for example, we tied up with or hooked up with one of the security uh, organizations, uh, large security organizations, and they tailored a program for the client where um, you can nominate a security ch uh, champion from each of your teams. And then this champion undergoes a lot of uh, tests and uh, he has to take a lot of assignments. And then finally, there are various, you know, gold, bronze, silver levels that, that these guys have to reach to. And once they are gold certified, they are like the security champions in the program. And interestingly, they tie this back to the maturity model, to the DevOps and agile maturity model. So if you're, let's say on a maturity level three, on a scale of one to five, five being the highest, one being the lowest, uh, if you're maturity level three, you should have at least one security champion as part of your team. If you're five, then you know, all of your guys should be security champion certified. So it's a, it's a people game. Uh, it's not only about the tools and technology. Your people should understand where the fault lies, and that is where they'll rectify it really quickly. So this is something pretty interesting to share. Huh. So that's another proactive piece that I think, if I understand you correctly, depending on the security level of what you're working on, you proactively build in the security by building in a certain number and level of security champions into that initiative? That's right. That's right. So the idea is that um, the, if, you, if you bring in any developer, let's say on average um, age of any developer within our client studio would be roughly around five to 10 years. 
of experience, uh, they may not have so much of a knowledge around um, areas across, say for example, DDoS, how do you manage uh, if somebody does a cross script hacking and things like that. Yeah. So what we do is we run them through this rigor of uh, a security program where they understand the nuances of security and secure coding practices. And then they undergo a lot of tests, you know, a lot of, um, lot of work that they have to do in terms of assignments. And then finally, as part of certification, they have to undergo a, you know, a, a, an exam. And that is where they get certified. Uh, and, and then they, they can take that practice back to the team and say, okay, guys, this is what we were doing wrong. It's, uh, it's a pretty rigor, rigorous thing. Uh, so when you talk about DevSecOps, we talked about the tooling angle um, where we can bring a lot of these tools early into the life cycle. But here is the people angle. How do you tackle security at a people's level? And this is how you uplift the capabilities of your current workforce on security. That's fascinating. And, and you mentioned the, the people level. So do you ever work with HR departments, for example, to create maybe a higher level or more respected position that now someone has added these security skills onto their profile or not necessarily? Uh, it's been, the interactions have been very, very limited, to be honest. Um, that is one area which I don't think, uh, at least most of us have cracked yet, you know, the HR and the finance part of things and turning them agile, or at least giving them that agile perspective, uh, maybe secure funding when it comes to, you know, agile funding and things like that. That is one area which is in its infancy, at least with a lot of the clients that I deal with, we try and, and, and break uh, the silos, but it is, it is really hard, to be honest. Yeah, it seems like, you know, they're already structured in those silos. So when you approach yeah. them, like, why are you even talking to me? <laughs> so, yeah. Interestingly, interestingly within Infosys, uh, you know, the, we are seeing some good changes. And maybe that's something that we go back and reflect to our clients, where um, I was running a, a IS initiative on DevOps some time back. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of training and coaching that happened for our finance and HR guys as well. And there was a good participation. So, so they, they knew and understood, you know, what we were talking about and how to make sure that the right kind of requirements flow through. For example, you know, in, in typical Infosys world, we have a massive SAP system. Yeah. So the requirements come, come back and forth and they're like, they were huge requirements. But then the HR, the finance team understood that, you know, we can actually possibly break it down. Um, into smaller chunks so that they can be delivered faster. So some of these things uh, are kind of becoming day in and day out work for them, which is good to, good to see. And maybe we can carry that similar experience back to the client and say, look, internally we have done this. We want to bring this to, to the next level in your organization. Absolutely. We would have our own success story to tell and learnings right. from that. It, it reminds me how right. uh, um, uh, an Infosys colleague and I, uh, BJ, actually... Um, we co-facilitated yeah. an agile session for uh, sales and uh, some of them were like, just get it over with so I can leave. But really most of them were very interested, very engaged, partly because they need to right. understand a certain level of agile in order to sell it. But um, yeah. they were genuinely engaged and um, something really interesting came out of it. One of the people in the workshop reached out to me and said, Hi, um, I'm in the managed services area. Could we just kind of brainstorm on what agile managed services would look like? So we just started. Ah, nice. Yeah, that could be great, right? Um, and yeah. so, you know, it's where Infosys or any company takes over a chunk of, of a client's 
business and promises to, and then in some cases say, you know, pay us this fixed fee, and then it's on us to do it much more cheaply. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's probably not always a fixed fee contract, but that's the general idea of do it more cheaply and offload it to free them up for more strategic work. Um, and so right. the more we brainstormed, the more interesting it got. And so we're just finishing up co-authoring um, a white paper on agile managed services. And oh, uh, nice. Yeah, and what I realized is that most salespeople, at least in his group, they think agile is the same as scrum or that scrum is agile. And as we talked about managed services and I, as I learned more about managed services, we realized that, you know, DevOps is probably much more appropriate and then Kanban and maybe later Scrum, but probably DevOps yeah. first. It's kind of an, a natural fit with managed services. So we, we restructured our white paper around that. So um, oh, okay. in any case, um, you, oh, yes, go ahead. So there is a very interesting work that we have done uh, working on one of those large deals. Uh, people as part of the large deals. So they said, you know how, let's say if Infosys manages the entire dev part as well as the ops part, uh, what is the benefit that the organization gets? And can we articulate a POV on that? So again, um, there is a very interesting piece of work that we've already done last year and I, I'm happy to share that with you guys if it helps, um, if, it, if, if it helps add any more value to the white paper. But essentially what we've done is we've said that if, if you give the entire dev, the test as well as the ops, to one vendor, how does it help you? Um, and there are multiple facets to it, um, and it's it's a pretty interesting POV. So maybe I can share it offline, and then you can. Oh, thank you. I would love to see it. And you know, just as we're yeah. talking, I'm realizing that that DevSecOps should also be part of Agile Managed Services because if it's not there, then sure. the whole world kind of falls apart. You know. <laughs> That's um, right. That's right. So so here goes another POV. I'll send you another one. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This is, this is yeah, great. No problem at all. Um, and maybe yeah, no if people listening to the podcast uh, hear about that, um, I'll, I'll actually make a separate recording as an outtake, and I'll just mention those resources and where they can find them. Uh, and I'll just post yeah, sure. the folder. Um, you know, and so to start to close out here, um, another really interesting topic you mentioned is cloud space. Um, Yep. and how you're looking for whole new skill sets in the cloud right. space area. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? What are you looking for and why? Sure, so typically with our clients now, we are getting into hybrid cloud environments, which means that uh, they may also have AWS, they may have Rackspace, they may have uh, GCP. They, so it, it's, it's pretty diversified in that case. And then of course you will have on-prem as well. So what happens is um, you have some of these specialized roles now, now let's say a cloud orchestrator. Um, so what will happen is, or a cloud broker. So just like you have brokers for your houses, like they negotiate on your behalf. Similarly, you have cloud brokers. So huh. they will understand, for example, your landscape and they will come and make a suggestion that Rackspace will work you know, best for you or AWS will work best for you. These are the tiers that you should go for. Um, hmm. This is the kind of cost that involved in each of these cases. So, so these cloud brokers, they become the, your advocates and champions. And they, by the way, they go and also negotiate with the vendor because they bring in that power. They wield that kind of a power. So 
this is a very interesting and a new role and there is a lot of demand coming in for cloud brokers especially when uh, organizations are moving on hybrid cloud um, the second one is the cloud audit manager i'm sure you know the word itself is self explanatory but but on cloud the nuances changes a lot when it comes to audit so you have to look through route 53 you have to look you know what ports uh, what accessibility uh, you have to look through uh, how your data is coming across the proxies and things like that so it's it's extremely challenging and it's very very different from how you uh, look into a reliability when it comes to on prem versus cloud so again it's a very specialized role and and again these guys uh, also for example the laws keep changing the gdpr laws in uk i mean in the europe has changed so now this guy has to be abreast with some of these laws and make sure that the data that you set up on on cloud is all okay and and sacrosanct so this is a this is a very very important and a niche area and we want to guys uh, we want to hire guys in these spaces because we have a lot of people who are kind of architects on aws um, or on rackspace or on azure but these are specialized roles that command at least 12 or 15% more billing because these are guys who know more than just setting it setting up uh, on cloud so i'm looking to beef up our practice by adding some of these new skill set it seems so valuable i mean just the fact that these are roles now that that these roles exist tells me right, how, right. how important it is so i think the final question i'm curious to ask you is sustainable transformation mm -hmm. you've worked on yeah. scale and probably medium or small scale transformations as well what are some of the key success factors that you've seen in helping a transformation not only happen but stick sure so i think the very first thing is that bottoms up approach works very well if you have top down approach with you know always carrot and stick policy um it, it really doesn't work uh, too well unless the people on ground realize that well the change needs to happen and the change has to come from me uh, otherwise it's just that you know you uh, you you keep on uh, pressurizing your resources and the people will come move into your organization and move out and you will still not see a big change happening so how do you bring about a bottoms up change that's a very important question then um i think again the way i have at least succeeded if i i say probably partly is by the right amount of information that needs to go out at all levels you know at a developer level at a tester level at a cio level and this is what we call as information radiation so i'll give you a very small example Uh -huh. when we introduce a tool like sonar cube in the pipeline it used to provide vulnerabilities on the code that you write and we put up a giant dashboard in front of the team and it said code smells introduced by team in last one week and there was a big hue and cry because people's names started appearing on the tv and almost 200 people saw for this team uh, who introduced the code smell in last one week right not good uh, and you have to handle the people really well so these people came back and said that's not the kind of dashboard we want to see uh, so how do we preempt something like this that is where we realized can we introduce the same set of rules as part of a pre commit stage as part of their pipeline so even before a committing they come to know of the vulnerabilities that come they can fix it there and then if they don't do it then their name appears on the dashboard so that's a behavioral shift which we yeah. brought about with this live example and similarly you know right amount of radi information radiation needs to happen there's the only way where it can sustain and people understand okay here is a value uh, of such a metric 
that seems like such an important point, really, both of them, the behavior shift and what's the environment or conditions that you put in place to bring about a certain type of behavior. Um, right. As, as well as the, um, the, the visibility, you know, we talk in agile and sort of like dreamy yep. voices about, you know, highly visible information yep. radiators. And yet yep. I've seen so many, I've heard so many leaders, both middle managers and senior leaders say, I support agile, but I have no visibility into what's going on. So exactly. That's how, right. how can I, what do I do? And it's a completely valid question. Um, That's right. So yeah. uh, we were dealing with the CIO of HSBC in UK and, it, and, and uh, he came back to his teams and said, I need only two things on my dashboard because I have invested heavily into DevOps. So one, I want you to show me the SEV1 incidents happening in production. And on the okay. same screen, I want to show, I want you to show me how many deployments in production have happened for you in the last six months. I want to see both these statistics and I will give you the money only if your production, number of deployments to your production has actually gone up and your incidents have actually either remained the same, incident count has remained the same or it has come down. Only then I'm going to give you, release you the money for the next year. Wow. <laughs> so very simple stats, very simple stats work? but very effective. Yeah. It, was, it worked okay. really well because uh -huh. it, it worked really well because that's what DevOps is all about, right? You have to go at, yeah. at, at a fast speed, delivers things to production, faster time to market. And at the same time, be stable enough in production. That's all that he was looking for from DevOps initiative. And he pretty much got what he wanted. Absolutely. So uh, you've been in this game about 14 years. What is one thing that you know now that you wish you had known when you were a fresher? I wish I could have possibly spent more time on uh, learning more technologies um, than, than I did at that time. So I was probably, I, I was neck deep into .NET, but let's assume for a minute I was into Java, J2E, and some of the other stuff as well. It could have uh, possibly enhanced uh, the growth that, uh, that I could have seen now. So I'm, I, think, I think it's just about uh, maybe doing a bit more exploratory work around more technologies uh, mm -hmm. so that I would have been more hands-on in some of the other areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to sincerely thank you for your time today. It's just been such an interesting discussion, and I know we've only scratched the surface. No problem at all. Thanks for all your time as well. Thanks for listening to the Agility Transformation Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to pass along our web address to your friends and colleagues, agilitytransformation.com. You can subscribe on our website or find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube and give us a like. Be sure to check out our previous site for previous podcasts and join us next time. And until then, be curious, adjust and adapt, and be agile.